Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. Uh, and Thank you, worship team. Uh, we are so blessed in this church uh, with the musicians we have and and the way they minister, it's neat to be able to see Jesus through it all. And uh, I just thank you, worship team, very, very much. I know a lot of time and preparation goes in. I've had a privilege to preach uh, in Asia. I've had a privilege to preach in Australia. Had privilege to preach in Europe uh, uh, and from coast to coast uh, where there's a lot of different dialects. Uh, and... Uh, and uh, even preach here in Grand Junction, where uh, Bob Mining would like us to believe that Toby has a certain dialect. Uh, they, they, these guys are characters, I'll tell you. But, but regardless of the dialect or the language, you know, hallelujah is hallelujah in every language. Every language, there's a word, hallelujah, means praise the Lord, and it's all said the same way by every tongue around the world, and it's, it, it, it's just awesome, and uh, of course we had that here this morning. Uh, we're going to jump right into it this morning, Matt has prayed for us, and I'm going to do something a little different, I want to take you to John chapter 11, we've been going through the Old Testament, we've been looking at heroes of the faith, we've been looking at faith, and this morning the reason I'm taking us to John, the, John 11, I think I think all the examples of faith are great, but if we're going to really let faith play out in our lives, it is good to have an understanding of how God works and how that faith plays into it. I had the privilege uh, in January of 2011 of preaching a uh, message here in uh, uh, this church on, uh, on John chapter 11. And in one sense, John chapter 11 is like Hebrews 11. It's a New Testament chapter on faith. And uh, back in 2011, as we looked at it, uh, we looked at uh, uh, verse 16 in John 11, uh, which uh, we have Didymus or Thomas, the disciple, uh, Lazarus has died. They don't know that he's died. They think he's sleeping. Jesus is going to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He's responding to the call. And, of course, one of the lessons we learn in John 11 is Jesus may not come when, you, when he's called, but he will always be on time. He's never a minute too early. He's never a minute too late. He is always on time, all the time. And uh, so Jesus is explaining about Lazarus and that they're going to go back to Judea. Uh, this is shortly before the crucifixion of Jesus. He's not exactly popular in uh, Judea. And so in uh, verse 16 of John 11, it says, Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go so that we may die with him. I want you to hear something today. God doesn't want you to die for him. He wants you to live for him. He wants you to be salt and light and truth for him. Now, Thomas was ready to go die with him. And and to me, that's really no faith. <laughs> here, here he had walked with Jesus for three years. He had seen the miracles. He had seen everything. He says, well, if you insist, Jesus, we'll go with you to Judea. Uh, come on, guys. Let's go. We'll die 
with him. So, no faith. But then if you jump over to verse 21 and 24, you see Martha. And in Martha's life, there is a, there is a faith, but it's a limited faith. Uh, uh, in verse 21, it says, Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Now that's faith. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will do it. And she holds out the expectation of possibly the resurrection. And we see that Jesus fans that flame of faith in verse 23, where it says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. But then we see that Martha shrinks back to kind of the Sunday school definition. For in verse 24, Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So we see the disciples no faith. We see Martha has a limited faith. It gets fanned and, and she kind of keeps it there at the, at the limited part. But then we see a supernatural faith with Jesus in verse 41. And it says, so they removed the stone, and then Jesus uh, raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you, for you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And, of course, we know the rest of the story, how Lazarus came out bound in his, his grave clothes, uh, the resurrection. So we have no faith, limited faith, uh, supernatural faith. Uh, and, and that was January of 2011. We aren't going to preach that sermon this morning, but I want you to see how this is a chapter on faith. Now, what I want us to do today is I want us to see how God works and how we as his children can be a part of that work. Our faith is involved, and I think if we understand how God works in our context, uh, we will be more open to, to having faith. Uh, God works in the context of his love. Uh, we see this in verses 3 and 5. Now, in your bulletin, they're a little bit out of order. I'm not sure how that happened. But anytime uh, I get on a computer, anything can happen, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and so it's just a little bit out of order, but, but you can find them there. All the points are going to be covered uh, just in a little different order. God always works in the context of his faith. Uh, in, in chapter 11 of John, verse 3 and 4, it says, So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not, uh, not to end in death, but to the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified. Verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. He loved Martha. He loved Mary. He loved Lazarus. God always works in the context of his love. And, and, and God is Love, and we see examples of that uh, all around us. Uh, I greeted. Uh, I greeted. Uh, let's see. I'm going to get it wrong. Is it Katie in the in the Drew B? No, no, it's not Katie. It's Han Hannah. Okay, good. I'm learning. Okay, okay. Uh, here's Hannah, and she has a friend. I don't want to make more of her friend than need be. Okay, but 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 he's. And I'm sorry. Please come back. He's, he, he's got a Broncos jersey on, all right? Uh, Hannah 
has a Drew Brees jersey. Now, that can only be in the context of God's love. you got to understand, especially when they're praying together today. But that's the neat thing. God, God brings all kinds of people from all kinds of different places and walks of life, and even rooting for different teams. And he brings them together in the context of his love. So thank you for that example, and I'll pay you afterwards, okay? Don't, don't get upset with me. But, but I saw that this morning, and I, I thought, oh, that's just great. That's wonderful. That's who our God is. And, uh, of course, I was talking about how we have uh, Archie Manning to be thankful for Peyton Manning, who uh, got us our last Super Bowl, and, uh, and all the connections there. But God works in the context of his love. We need to understand that, that uh, he, he hears and he says, the, the, the one you love is sick. Jesus redeems us in his love. He equips us in his love. He enables us in his love. He blesses us in his love. And he understands our sorrows and what we're going through in his love. I'll turn to it, but in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage uh, in Scripture, and I had it uh, marked for first service. That's what happens between first and second service. Uh, I lose my markers. But in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, Speaking of Jesus prophetically, it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Beautiful picture of the love of Jesus Christ. I've always been astounded by the fact that at the uh, Passover meal, they celebrate the Seder meal. And this goes back all the way to the time of uh, Egypt. And you can go to the Jewish temple today or synagogue, and you can buy a, a pamphlet, a booklet that tells you how to celebrate Seder in your home. And at the Seder meal, there is a box that is put on the table called a unity and in that box, there are three pieces of matzo that are placed. Matzo is the unleavened bread that they uh, serve uh, at the Passover meal. It's unleavened because leaven is always a type for sin. And in Jesus, there was no sin. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteous ones of God. And so they have uh, this unity, and that's what it's called. It's a box, and in it, three pieces of matzo. Now, God kind of knew what he was doing, didn't he? Because he's three in one, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And at the beginning of the meal, they take out the center piece of matzo, they break it in half, and they put it in a little envelope called an afkomen. And that, that is hidden, and at the end of the meal... That is brought out, the off-goman, and they open it, and they break it, and they eat it. And it was that particular matzo that Jesus used for the Lord's Supper when he took it, and he held it up, and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Now, if you've ever seen matzo, it's kind of like a, a cracker, a soda cracker. And if you hold it up to the light, you'll see holes in it where it's pierced for baking, You'll also see that it has discolored spots on top. Because of the baking, you have the dark brown and, and then the white. 
And isn't it interesting that Scripture said he was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquity? Isn't it something that it's the second piece of matzo of the three that are in one unity, and it's at the end, and Jesus takes it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. You see, God knew what he was doing all the way from the beginning. And we find that in Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelicum, where he curses the serpent and he says, you will bruise him on the heel. He will come through the seed of the woman born of the virgin, but he will crush your head. Amen? The victory is ours. And in all of that, God works in the context of his love. Our work becomes dead if we divorce it from his love. Our motivation needs to be out of love, and it, it makes a difference. Uh, it was wintertime in Hawaii in 1972. Now, it's hard to differentiate winter from summer because they're exactly the same. On the island of Oahu, they don't even have weathermen because unless a hurricane shows up, it's always the same. It rains a little bit in the afternoon, sunny, 80 degrees all the time. gets really boring, makes you want to move to Colorado. But... Anyway, uh, uh, we, we had this friend, and I've told you about him by the name of Uncle Jim, and we had set up for church at the Leeward Community Church. It was a church plant, and uh, we were leaning on the balcony, looking out, watching people come, getting ready for service. We were all set to go, and, and a person pulls in in a brand-new Volkswagen van. And Uncle Jim, uh, uh, American father, Filipino mother, American citizen, uh, he had never seen a VW bus before. And he said, Doug, what is that? And I said, oh, that's a VW van. Peggy and I drove a bug, and I explained it to him. I said, they have seven-passenger vans, and, and they have nine-passenger vans. And he said, just think of all the people I could bring to church in something like that. And he was just shaking his head. Well, did I know the next Sunday I was there and I was leaning out after we got everything all set up and looking and hadn't seen Uncle Jim. All of a sudden, here comes this second brand new VW van. And you need to know that I had viewed the VW van through the eyes of a Westerner. I knew that they were seven passengers and, and nine passenger vans. Now, Uncle Jim saw it from the perspective of Asia. And they pulled in. And the doors opened, and 16 people got out of that van that he had brought to church on that particular Sunday. And he began to bring 14 to 16 people to church every Sunday in that Volkswagen van. Well, that was 1972. On July the 4th, 1972, I was discharged from the Air Force, and I went to Simpson Bible College in San Francisco. And three years later, in June of 1975, I found myself back in Hawaii planting a church in Kailua, which was a daughter church out of what had been this church plant in Pearl City at Leeward Community Church. The neat thing is that my founding family was Uncle Jim and his family. And he still had that Volkswagen bus. And he was still bringing 15 to 16 people to church, which really helped. <laughs> and and, and it, was, it was a great thing. About a year after I'd been there, in 1976, uh, I get a call one night from Uncle Jim. He's at an emergency phone on the Poly, which is the road up and over the Koalaus between Kailua and Honolulu. 
And uh, he says, Doug, my, my VW bus is broken down. Is there any way you can come get me and, and maybe tow my, my bus down to Kailua? And, of course, it's all downhill, so not a problem. And uh, I ran up, and I got him, and we went straight to a Volkswagen mechanic. And the Volkswagen mechanic, uh, he tried to start it, and he says, he says, you know, Jim, he says, I think, uh, I think you've seized your engine. He says, let me check your oil. Uncle Jim said, oil? He said, uh, it's a Volkswagen. It doesn't take water or oil. The mechanic said, oh, no, it doesn't take water, but it takes oil. Uncle Jim said, well, no one told me that. He said, I haven't put any oil in it. It had 49,000 miles on it plus. And he pulled the oil dipstick out. And there on the end of the oil dipstick was a ball of tar. <laughs> now, John Dyson was in our first service. He was a Volkswagen mechanic. In fact, he was head of the, the shop, and that's how he met his wife, Jackie. Uh, she was a disgruntled uh, customer, and uh, he, he so satisfied her that they got married. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty good customer service, isn't it? And, and, and I asked John in first service, I said, can a Volkswagen go 49,000 miles without any oil put in it? It's impossible. It's impossible. But you see, the motivation behind that Volkswagen bus was love. And it was bringing people where they could hear about Jesus Christ. And somehow God, God kept it going for 49,000 plus miles and uh, then he stopped it just so Uncle Jim could learn about oil. And, uh, and remember, oil is the symbol for the Holy Spirit, okay? And just like VW buses, we need to be regularly filled with the Holy Spirit, with the oil. God always works in the context of his love. Secondly, this morning, I want us to see that God works in the context of relationships. Uh, if you look at John chapter 11... Uh, verse 7 will work. It says, Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. They did this all together. In John 11, you see a relationship with Mary. You see one with Martha. You see one with Lazarus. And then you see the relationship with his disciples. God always works in the context of relationships. Uh, remember this, that the great commandment says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. There's a vertical relationship. But then the second commandment is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God created us for relationship. God created us for community. God created us to have a relationship with him and then to have a relationship with others as we act as salt and light. And remember, first of all, he works in the context of his love. So we are to love God and we are to love others around us. And as we think of that, I, I think of probably one of the greatest addictions in my life. I, I have been toying with going to rehab over this. Uh, but my, my, my addiction is Starbucks. And, uh, you know, anything can become an addiction. Uh, uh, news channels on TV can become an addiction. Uh, but Starbucks. 
And uh, I like going to Starbucks. I enjoy Starbucks. Starbucks, uh, one of the niches that it fills as it was uh, started in Seattle and the Pacific Northwest is it becomes a third place. It becomes a place for community. It becomes a place for people to get together. We went into Starbucks one day and there were a group of gals sitting around a table playing cards. And, and my wife Peggy said, I'd like to do that. That'd be fun. Just get together to play Old Maid or Uno or whatever they were playing uh, to get together. And, and Starbucks is for that. But I've gone into Starbucks at times, and there have been five, six people gathered around a table. And, and I've noticed they've all had one of these, and, and they all have a nice glow on their face. And, uh, and uh, they're looking at it, and, and they're texting. And I don't mind texting, except I have very fat thumbs. So if I text you and... I say something like drowned instead of drive, you need to understand it's my thumbs, okay? It's not my accent, right? Okay? Uh, fat thumbs. And, and I really envy the people that can hold it behind their back and text. You know, have you seen them do it? They do that. It's unbelievable. Uh, I haven't learned that yet. But here's five, six people sitting around the table, and they're, they're texting, and guess who they're texting? Yeah, one another. Hey, put the phone away. Lift your eyes. Speak to one another. Uh, God created us for relationships. And texting is great. It's not evil. It's a tool. It's wonderful. I love it. But, but you know, when, when I'm sitting right here, <laughs> we can talk to one another. And we can actually look one another in the eye. God created us uh, for relationships. So God works in the context of his love. He works in the context of relationships. Uh, Ian Bounds uh, said, The church is looking for better methods and better programs. God is looking for better men and women, men and women full of the Holy Spirit who know how to pray. Relationships with God, relationships with others. Uh, God created us for relationship. I've heard some pastors, as I served as a district superintendent, I'd go to them and they'd say, you know, the ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. And I just look at them dumbfounded. Who are you going to minister to? The chairs? The building? God created us to minister to one another. And it is the people that make the ministry. People are important to God. John 3.16. For God so loved what? The world. And that's red, yellow, black and white, brown. They are all precious in his sight. God loves people. God loves the world. And he loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I had a good friend, still have a good friend, Yervang. He, at the time, was uh, the church planning director for the Mong District in the Christian Missionary Alliance. That district uh, spans from the East Coast to the West Coast. Uh, their last uh, gathering they had of their district was at the Target Center in Minneapolis, and they had over 10,000 people participating. In our geographical districts, every two years we have council. Uh, this year it's in Columbus, Ohio. We do good to have uh, two to 3,000 people assembled out of all the 22 geographical districts. 
the Hmong district, over 10,000. And uh, I uh, was over here in Price, Utah, and I'd taken your Vang uh, ice fishing, actually had your Vang there doing our, our missions conference, and, and we were on uh, Joe's Valley Reservoir up out of uh, uh, Castledale, and we were catching splake, having a great time, and I'm picking your Vang's uh, uh, brain and learning all kinds of stuff. And I said, your Vang, uh, uh, since you've been in America, and by this time your Vang was an American citizen, and, uh, and I said, what, what are some of the things that you've learned? Uh, uh, how can you help me out? He says, well, one of the things I've learned is garage sales. <laughs> he says, they're wonderful. And uh, he says, in that... I've learned that Americans don't pay a lot of money for junk. And he had learned how to dicker and and get good prices at garage sales. And then he said something that really sobered me. He said, you know, Americans don't pay a lot of money for junk. He says, think of what God paid for you and me. His son. His only son. And that's how much God loves you. And that is how much God wanted to be in relationship with you and I. So God always works in the context of his love. He always works in the context of relationship. Thirdly, this morning, God works in the context of crisis. Of course, in verses 14 and 15 of John 11 here, we see the crisis. It says, So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. The crisis is that a loved one had died. The crisis was that Lazarus was dead. And, of course, by the time Jesus got there, he had been dead uh, four days. Uh, If you look at it, or if you're familiar with it and can quote it by heart, in Psalm 23, David wrote a wonderful psalm. It simply says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You know, the valley of the shadow of death is a crisis. And God works in the context of of crisis. In my very first church uh, plant there in Kailua, Hawaii, uh, uh, we were next door to Kaneohe that is home to Kaneohe Marine Corps Air Station, and we had a number of young Marines in our church, and in fact, we saw a number of young Marines come to Jesus. We saw a number of young Marines go off to Bible school, and one young Marine, his name is J.P. Johnson. He was raised in Omaha, Nebraska at Boys Town. Boys Town is the wonderful Catholic ministry group home there in Omaha that takes in orphans, and, and they have a host couple for each home, and they have about 12 children in each home, and they treat it like a family, and, and they just do a wonderful ministry, and J.P. was a part of that. He grew up at Boys Town. He has no blood relatives that he knows of. Uh, he has uh, no one that is related to him. And as he came to church there, he, uh, he fell in love with uh, one of our uh, uh, beautiful young ladies, uh, uh, Muriel Akeda. She was of Japanese ancestry, and uh, she had started attending, although her family was Buddhist, and, 
and JP and Mario met, and they dated for quite some time. I had the privilege of performing their wedding, and about a year and a half later, JP came to my office, and he was all excited because Muriel was expecting, and it was going to be his first blood relative that he had ever seen. And I mean, he was, he was just thrilled. And it came time for Muriel to give birth, and she did. And little Alicia was born, and uh, uh, I was down there to see them. And, and she was born with that uh, defect where there's a hole between the two chambers of the heart. And back in those days, they hadn't uh, perfected that surgery like they have today. And she was blue, and uh, it was touch and go, and we prayed like crazy. And on the third day, I was down there visiting with them, and and little Alicia uh, passed away. Uh, Muriel was holding her when that happened, and uh, JP was there, and there were a lot of tears, and it's still one of the hardest things that... I've ever had to go through. And JP looked at me, he says, Doug, he says, I, this is my first blood relative. And uh, he says, God has taken her. Why? I said, JP, I, I don't know. But I said, I do know that God loves you. And I do know that God hasn't gone anywhere. And I do know that God walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death. And we prayed, and we hugged, and we cried, and uh, it was probably about noontime that I left him, and I told JP that I would pick him up at 2 o'clock, and I would take him to the funeral home and and help him with the arrangements, and I picked him up, and uh, this was a tough day, and we went to the funeral home, and I told him that we were on a budget, and I kind of went out on a limb. Uh, uh, JP said, I don't know what we're going to do. He says, we don't have much, and I knew they didn't have much. Hawaii's the highest cost of living place in the U.S. And I said, don't worry, uh, the, the church will take care of the funeral. And so we told the funeral director that we were kind of on a budget, and he brings out a coffin. I still can't believe that he did this, that, that, that it was just a foam ice chest lined with satin. I mean, the lid even went on. It was a foam ice chest like you'd buy at Walmart or Target. And I go, no, 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 no. I go, we we need a real casket. I mean, this was J.P.'s first blood relative and and his little girl. And so they brought out the casket, and he goes, this is going to cost you more. And I said, not a problem. And I think we were up to seventeen, eighteen hundred bucks, and that was a lot of money back in those days. Well, that night was Wednesday night prayer meeting, and uh, I went to prayer meeting. We had about uh, twenty-one to thirty people, and and I I told them what I had promised. And in the back, we had a bowl, the Kakua bowl, the help bowl, uh, and uh, I said, you know, if you can put anything in, uh, uh, please do. Uh, and the funeral was going to cost seventeen hundred bucks. And do you know that night, and this was not a rich church. Most people worked two and three jobs in the church. Those 21 to 30 people gave $1,800. And it more than covered the, the funeral. Now, that afternoon after the mortuary, uh, JP had told his father-in-law what it was going to cost. And, and his father-in-law, he had observed Christians and uh, probably not too well. And he said, well, don't be surprised if you get like 20 bucks. 
And I heard this story when after church that night, I, I came over to JP with the check for 1800 And uh, I said, you know, there's even money here for flowers. <laughs> and, and we had the funeral. The gospel was shared. And, uh, and we, were, we were good to, to, to go. And this was just at the end of our ministry there. And about uh, a week later, it was November 30th, and, and uh, we were moving from uh, Hawaii, from Kailua, to Price, Utah. We were leaving Paradise for Zion. <laughs> and on November 30th, I took Peggy and our two daughters to the airport, but before doing so, we went to McDonald's in Enchanted Lake, and I was going to treat them to breakfast. I'm a big spender, you can see. And then take them and get them on the airplane, and I was leaving December 1st. Well, as we got in line, uh, we saw Muriel's dad, Mr. Ikeda, and he came up to me while I was in line, and he says, after you get your family situated, he said, could I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure, not a problem. So we got their food. I went over to Mr. Ikeda's table on the outside patio there, and I sat down, and I said, how can I help you? He said, I watched what you and your church did for my daughter and son-in-law in Alicia's funeral. And he says, I have one question, Doug. He says, I'd like to know how I can make your God my God. And we sat there, and I went through the Romans Road, and there at McDonald's on the patio, he prayed to receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Today, I can tell you that the whole Akita family knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God, yes, yes, you can clap for that. God used little Alicia's death to bring a whole family to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, not only that, he went on to give J.P. and Muriel three wonderful children, and J.P. has blood relatives. Now, my grandparents uh, uh, grew up on homestead farms in northern Missouri, they date back to the late 1700s. And we have a funeral back there, where a funeral a cemetery back there where all my relatives are buried, great-great-great-grandfathers and so forth, all the way down, except my dad. He wanted to be buried in another cemetery. That was my dad. <laughs> but they're all there in one place. It's kind of interesting. But as farmers, I learned as a young boy that you didn't pay a lot of money for hill country. Uh, in the old days, especially before fertilizer, the most expensive farmland was called bottomland. And the creeks and the rivers would overflow and the sediment would settle and it was just richer and it grew better crops. And so it brought great money. You know what the valley of the shadow of death is? It's bottomland. And so if you're going through a crisis this morning, if you're in the valley of the shadow of death, if 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 you're in the in the valley, you're in the richest land, and I want to encourage you to do one thing, farm it, farm it, because it grows the best crops. Oh, it's great to be on the mountain, and you can praise and rejoice, and the view is great from up there, but the real lessons and where God does his real work is in the valley. It's in the bottom land, and it grows the very best crops. So if you find yourself in bottom land this morning, <laughs> uh, farm it. 
Now, God works in the context of his love. He works in the context of relationships. He works in the context of crisis. And then in verses 21 through 25, we see that he works in the context of faith. It says again, Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus works in the context of faith. You see, Martha knew that Jesus could make a difference. And Jesus fans those flames And she kind of shrunk back a little bit to the Sunday school answer, but she still knew that Jesus works in the context of faith. Now, when it comes to our faith, we we must see that Jesus is the Lord of the now. Now, certainly he's the God of the past, and he's also the God of the future. And it's easy for me to believe that he's the God of the past and he did the miracles that we read in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's easy for me to believe him out here in the future. But what about right now, especially if I am in the valley of the shadow of death? When God was asked his name, what did he answer? What did he say his name was? I am. Not I was or I will be, but I am. And I am means right now, today, this very instant in our lives and whatever we are going through. You see, faith is the ability to believe in spite of the tomb. It's believing that God will work in my situation and in your situation, in your circumstance and my circumstance. Right now, whatever I'm going through, God is going to work. Very quickly, uh, I was 11 years old when I felt God call me into full-time ministry. It was at a Royal Ambassador camp down in New Mexico, a camp in Lo, not far away from Glorieta and Santa Fe. And uh, it took like uh, six times of singing all six verses of Just As I Am, but finally I gave in. But then I fell into worshiping uh, other idols, basically the god of football, and it came to the end of high school, and I knew I should be in Bible school, and but I had had several football scholarships, an appointment to the Air Force Academy, and I decided to follow uh, uh, football, and uh, and I didn't play too much football, and I got a letter from an uncle that I never knew I had by the name of Sam, and this was before lottery numbers, and he said I had been inducted into the United States Army, and I had 27 days to report to Fort Ord, California, which no longer exists, and... Uh, and so I went down to the Air Force, and because of the Air Force Academy appointment, I, I was able to bypass a three-year waiting list and, and get into the Air Force, but I still had to wait four to five months to go to basic training. It was the second night of basic training when they finally let us go to bed, and we were told if we got out of bed, we'd go to jail, and they meant it. And I'm sitting in this World War II barracks on a top bunk about 100 degrees, And I look up at the ceiling and I said, oh, God, how did I get here? You know what? He said, I'm so very glad you asked. (laughs) You told me that you would follow me with your life and that you would do this. And then you ran off to play football. 
do I have your attention yet? I felt a lot like Jonah in the big fish, except I was in Lackland Air Force Base in a top bunk in 100 degrees. And so I got out of bed and I got on my knees and I told God that I wanted to rededicate my life to him and if I ever got out of the Air Force, I would be at Bible school. I did. And to make a long story short, uh, <laughs> uh, I got sent to headquarters PACAF, Hickam, Hawaii, and there was a good friend there who had become a good friend of Peggy's. She had been at Bible school, and he had graduated, and he was starting a church, the Leeward Community Church in Pearl City, and uh, he invited me to become his youth pastor. And so for almost three years, I got on-the-job training of what it looked like to be a church planter, uh, set up chairs, take down chairs, set up tables, take down tables. I even learned how to run a Gestetner. That was before copiers, folks. Uh, and I'll tell you, that's a trip. Uh, be, be thankful for copiers. But, uh, but know this, God works in the context of our faith. Whatever we're going through, if we'll put our faith in the Lord, God will bring us through the valley of the shadow of death. Amen? Amen. Last point this morning. God works so that he might be glorified. Now, we see this in verse 40, but we also see this in verse 4, where it says, But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end a death, but it's for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And then if you go down to verse 43, it says, When Jesus had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Uh, we need to realize that God's at work in our lives to bring glory to himself. And all these things that happen in our lives are not by accident, but God is using them to glorify himself. I'm down to the point where at the VA, uh, they do an echocardiogram on me every six months, and probably within the next year, I will get a new aortic heart valve. You'll still have your old one, but I'll have a new one. And and it's it's just one of those things. I've had two uh, malignant uh, melanomas. That's what this is up here. A uh, uh, number of health problems, uh, type 2 diabetes. But the neat thing in all that is I've been able to pray with two doctors and seven nurses to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Amen? And, and I would have never... I would have never <laughs> met these people in my life. Uh, my doctor currently at the VA is Dr. Scow, and he called me. I have a whole five acres. He wants to come elk hunting on my property. Uh, but God's developing a relationship there. And, in fact, the last conversation, he says, Doug, why don't you just start calling me Tom? Oh, the door is opening. <laughs> you see, God uses these things in our lives for his glory. Uh, my first melanoma, it was about a three-hour surgery, cutting all this out, had 80-some stitches. Neat thing was the next day I was flying out, and they moved me up to first class because it was a 757, and, and it was still oozing up there and so forth. They didn't want the passengers having to look at that, so they moved me to first class, and I probably had the cheapest ticket on the plane, you know, so, so good stuff comes out of all of this. But the whole three hours while he's cutting 
I'm getting to share with him about Jesus, and he's listening, and, uh, and he followed up. Uh, the only thing of that I didn't like is when they had to carterize, you know, and you smell all that smoke and barbecue smell and stuff, and you realize it's you. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but the outcome was wonderful. So how do I want to wrap this up? I want to wrap it up this way. So many times we think we have to be a crystal goblet and have all kinds of abilities and gifts for God to use us in ministry. Uh Uh-uh. God wants you just the way you are. He wants to take everything that's happening in your life in the context of his love and relationship and crisis and faith, and he wants to use it for his glory. Now, I don't know if some of you know what this is. This, this was what jelly and jam used to come in. It's called a jelly jar, okay? Uh, they're kind of an antique now, I think. Uh, I had to really look around to find this one. But back in the old days on the back sink of both of my grandparents, once they got indoor plumbing, they had jelly jars sitting there. And you'd pick up a jelly jar and drink out of it. In fact, everyone drank out of it, and no one died that I know of, but... but You had the jelly jar there, not a crystal goblet. It was something that got used every day. And I want you to know as we close this morning, God's not looking for crystal goblets. He's looking for plain old jelly jars that are empty, that he can fill with his Holy Spirit and use you. He just simply needs your availability. Use you to glorify himself as he works in the context of love, relationships, crisis, and faith. So, we're going to close in prayer. And as we do so, I'm going to take just a few moments of silence, and I'm going to invite you, whatever crisis you're going through this morning, just to give it to God, knowing that he wants to fill your jelly jar (laughs) with his spirit and use it all for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love and that you work in the context of your love. I thank you that you desire an intimate relationship with each one of us. I thank you, Lord, that you bought us with the price of your son, that you redeemed us. And Lord, I I even thank you for the crises in our life, knowing that you use them to glorify yourself and, and to grow crops and to teach us lessons that we couldn't learn any other way. And, Lord, I know it's all by faith. And so, Lord, by faith this morning, we bring you our crisis. We lay it in your hands. And, Lord, we ask that you would be glorified. Be glorified in us. And as we go out this week, Lord, make us a blessing to others as we relate to them out of your love. And we'll just thank you and praise you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.